Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, in which we are answering your questions about Haim Potok's novel, My Name is Ashalev. We have come to the end of this discussion about this miraculous book that I think we all are kind of in love with. Uh, and uh, so we're going to answer your questions. Um, it's Christmas week, though. So let's talk about Christmas for just a second. I guess by the time this airs, like drops on podcast apps, it'll be December 20th. No, it'll be... No, no. You know what? We're recording this late. My schedule is all off. We're recording this late. And Logan told me that he could rush it to be done today. So tonight is when people will be hearing this. So this is one of the few episodes where you'll be hearing it within 24 hours, if you listen right away, of us recording it. So Christmas is coming. How how are we feeling about our Christmas shopping? Tim, how about you? I'm buying gifts for one person. Your wife? And one person only. That's my wife. I know what I'm going to get her. It's just a matter of doing a little bit of execution. Mm, and six days it's it'll be done i feel i feel ready mm. you're uh hand making a uh how did you know she, she listens to birthing the show. tub <laughs> <laughs> i'm hand carving i'm chiseling out a birthing tub for her how did you know <laughs> you're so good at this uh, i don't know it's just it, there was a there was a vibe there's some energy yeah there's a vibe that I, that I just grabbed onto i just it kind of wafted by and i thought that's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, people say that a lot. They'll be like, hey, you're giving off a handcrafted, personally chiseled birthing tub vibe. Well, and for all these years, it's been awkward and uncomfortable. And yeah. now, here it is. But now, <laughs> you're finally saying This is the year. This is the year, finally. Uh, uh, Heidi, what about you? My Christmas shopping is all done, and I'm buying Christmas presents for a million people at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just one. Thousands upon thousands of people. Well, just sorry for you. Not that many, but it's a lot. And I'm all done because of the internet. And this is one of the great uses of the internet. And I'm grateful for it. And I am happy to embrace how it's making my life better at Christmas time. (laughs) Did you do any shopping at the big A? I'm, I, I plead the fifth on that. Be honest. Be honest. (laughs) Of course I did. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a strong person. <laughs> I'm weak. Pray for me, a sinner. <laughs> that should be their banner, you know, like <laughs> like just under where you like just under the Amazon search bar. I'm. I, we know I'm you're not a strong people. person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. We know you can't handle the truth. Well, after this, after we record here, I'm going to pick some things up uh, on behalf of my wife for our children at at Target, which is only mildly mm-hmm. better than mm. than Amazon. At least Target has a local store where they will have local employees who will be uh, keeping some of the money in our local community. But you know, Amazon has a warehouse with locally, so you know, who cares about any of it anyway? Let's just all be Christmas nihilists. We are okay. all complicit in the destruction of our culture. <laughs> Speaking of Christmas nihilists, my name is Asher Lev. We have lots of questions to get to. Um, I think this is a book that people really enjoyed reading with us. Before we do that, though, I want to remind people about Classical U from our friends over at, at Classical Academic Press. Because Tim has a course there right now. And it's it's Tim's little Shakespeare course. I don't know why I said little. I didn't mean that in a in an insulting sort of sense, Tim. I just meant it in... You know what? There's no defense for saying that word. <laughs> He's been, it's cute. It's a cute class. I meant, I meant it in a positive sense. Uh, but really what I mean is Tim's awesome Shakespeare course. Um, but there's more than just the Shakespeare course. There is 
uh, courses on on all sorts of literature. There's courses on pedagogy. There's courses on foreign language. There's courses for uh, for groups. Like if you're part of a school or a co-op and you want to sign up and watch a variety of courses on the classical tradition, on how to be a better teacher, on how to build your school, on how to build a curriculum, on how to teach a curriculum, you could you could maybe want to have one on Latin. Or or let's just say hypothetically that you're a big fan of a guy who did a course on Shakespeare. Then perhaps you would be interested. So classicalu.com or you can go to Classical Academic Press and click on the link there, has a lot of great options for you. Now, if you sign up, you get access to all of these. It's not just the one course. You don't have to pick and choose. Um, and they have given our listeners a, a code to get some free months out of their, their, their courses here. And we have new, new uh, coupon codes for you to enter. They're a little bit more precise. So here's what you can do. If you want to get a free monthly trial, you can go to go to their website and then enter the code CR monthly. So close reads monthly, or you could get um, a part of access to their annual subscription, get a discount on that, and it's CR annual. So C R A N N U A L. C R annual or C R monthly. You can write those down. They'll also be in the show notes below this episode on Substack and on whatever podcast app you're using. But they're uh, making this show possible in November and December. So we're grateful to them for partnering with us. But also, we just recommend what they're doing over there. In part, yes, because one of our best friends has a course on there that we all want you to be able to have access to. So support Classical U, support Tim's endeavors on Classical U, and you know, embrace a little Shakespeare. That's That's the motto of this little ad read that I'm doing right now. So... I feel like I feel like that's the end of it, though. Is that the end of the ad read now? Should we move on, or do you guys want to jump in and I'm say ready. something nice about Classical U too? Ready, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thanks to Classical U for for uh, sponsoring Close Reads this month. Okay, let's answer some questions. I've got a question from someone who is important to me. My wife read this book, and now my wife does not read along with us like ever. Um, I don't think she, I think like me, she doesn't like the sound of my voice on podcasts. That might be it. Um, so I think Tim she, is the only contributor who has a spouse who listens to the show. And I should say, <coughs> Galen hears me enough. It was more like when we were dating, mm. she would listen to it. Yeah. When you, were still, she, when you were still mysterious. When I was still mysterious. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so I think she kind of drops in every once in a while, fair. but I, I don't, she's got, Plenty of things that she listens to. Other things in life. Now, to do. Bethany, other things Beth, in life. Yeah. Bethany is going to probably end up listening to this series because she read the book. I knew that she would love this book, and I like insisted daily that she read it. So then she read it and she loved it, and um, she will probably end up listening to this. But um, I want to start with her question because I think it's a pretty interesting observation. She pointed out that there is a lot of talk in this book about how the world is not pretty. And so sometimes it's like the world is not pretty, make beautiful things. Sometimes it's the world is not pretty, learn to adapt, learn to accept it. But she she felt like there's not a lot of talk in this book, uh, interestingly, about beauty. In fact, what makes something aesthetically beautiful or 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 complete is not necessarily defined very often. You have a lot of different takes on that in this book. And so she was wondering if you guys have a take on why that phrase, the world is not beautiful, is used so often, but then 
there's not a lot of definition of what something beautiful is. Is do you have a re- do you think there's a reason for that in this book? Tim, well, actually, I think you both nodded. Tim, I think got the nod in first, so I'd love to hear what you think there, Tim. Do you have any thoughts? I on was this? mainly nodding. I, I like because I like Bethany's observation. I mean, it's really true. There's so much talk about how the world is difficult. So I, I wonder if um <laughs> if when Heidi we first start hearing that phrase, <laughs> would you say? I said if Heidi will answer the question for you. I really wonder if Heidi will answer that question. <laughs> when we first start hearing that phrase, it's mainly from his mom. And I think his mom is going through this. She knows how ugly the world can be. She just lost her brother. Jews are dying in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Her husband is trying to do something about it, but he, you know he's fighting a tidal wave. Mm-hmm. So I think it first shows up there. And I wonder if she's kind of seeking solace from all of that pain through her son's art. She just wants her son to be making things that are happy and pretty. Um, the second thought that I have is that I wonder if there's a little, I'm going to say this. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and as soon as I say it, I'm kind of second guessing myself. I wonder if in the art world, there's a little bit of a um, need to kind of justify your existence by in the way that you would justify your existence if you're trying to make it as an artist by is by making things that please other people you know things that are pretty things that are beautiful but so much of what's going on with asher is he's trying to just give some sort of visual voice to what's inside of him and it's it's not pretty he's like suffering a different set of troubles from his mom but he's suffering this kind of gift that's been foisted upon him from somewhere, either from God or from the other side. We're not quite sure at the beginning of the book and the kind of like separate, like this kind of like how dark his family, it's not a dark family legacy. The, the darkness that his family is fighting is kind of inside the home. He's not being, you know, protected from it. Mm. So I think he's kind of, he's painting how he feels and how he feels is not pretty all the time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Asher's calling from the master of the universe, which we find out at the very end of the book, but we see manifested throughout the book is uh, the master of the universe tells him now journey with me, my Asher paint the anguish of all the world. Let people see the pain but create your own molds and your own play of forms for the pain. We must give a balance to the universe. And um, what his mother seems to be saying from the beginning, paint the pretty birds, right? Um, Paint the pretty world is every mother. I relate to this mother, this motherhood thing that she's manifesting, that she's putting out there, which is, I don't want my children to be touched by the fall of this world. I want to protect them from it. I want them to see a pretty world and I will do everything I can to give them that world. And, and part of the sword in every mother's heart to use the biblical language about Mary is that every mother has to reckon with the fact that they cannot do that. It's impossible. They cannot do it. Um, and Asher's feels as though his calling is not to 
to provide a solution for the pain, which is beauty. And I know what I know. I know Bethany's reading right now. I'm reading the same book and it's on my list for my top books of um, 2022. So you're just gonna have to listen to that episode if you want to know. Coming on uh, December 26th. Yep. yep. <laughs> that Asher is just painting that all of his formal training and all of his kind of existential training is painting the problem that beauty can solve, but not yet giving the beauty. So I think that there's hmm. an intentional, that beauty is an intentional missing piece uh, from our author um, because Asher is still in the pain and the book doesn't provide that unifying principle. We still have opposing forces at the end and art doesn't solve it. And his tradition hasn't solved it. They've just shown it, right? Revealed the brokenness and not yet the beauty. So there is a question on here about the theology of beauty that is presented in the novel. It's from Joel yeah. Welsh. It it mentions, well, I, I don't I don't want to listen read on the December twenty sixth. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get into it too much because it it's gonna it's gonna step on some some toes there with on our future episode. Um, but I th- we can maybe even come back to it when we when we answer when we talk about the books that we love uh, from this year. Um, there's a few questions on Facebook, and there's also a few questions on uh, the Substack. Let's do this one from Coley. I know that sometimes on these Q and A's, it feels like we're jumping around a little bit haphazardly, and uh, in some some ways we are, but hopefully it all comes together. But there's a question here from Coley. She says, "Please comment on the orange juice losing its vitamins the longer it sits on the table." Do you have any thoughts on this? It, you know, it was something we didn't... It comes up a lot. And it, in a way, it adds some humor to it. But we didn't really discuss it in the previous episodes. Uh, Tim, what do you think about uh, the, the orange juice and the uh, his dad saying, if you don't, if it sits there a long time, those vitamins are going to go away? Maybe I missed something. I thought it was just some like something, you know, that your grandmother tell you tells you when she wants you to do something that has no basis in reality at all. You know, like eat your stewed spinach salad while it's hot. Otherwise, you won't get the nourishment out of it. Yeah, you will. You will. Actually, probably better if you eat it raw. It'll taste better if you eat it when it's hot, but you're not going to lose any nutrients. You know, I think it's just one of those kind of like, yeah, I I think his dad just wants him to drink the orange juice. I think that's true. But I think even that, I think you're right. I mean, it is as simple as that. But what... I do think it's a bit of an objective correlative to his parents' kind of mindset that mm, that, mm. that they are the kind of people who would think that the orange juice would lose its vitamins if it sits out. And they are see that. passing that down to their child. And mm-hmm. so from the very beginning, we have this like vision of these people as like just very endearing and they want the best for their son, but they're also telling him to do something that makes no sense. And... Um, just because that's the tradition, right? And so I think that that kind of mindset is a characterization of 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 their family and of that my of of his parents that kind of remains with you throughout the story. And, and his parents, I mean, to your point, kind of see they have plenty of evidence to believe that the world is in a state of, you know, entropic decay. Mm-hmm. You know. Like things do not get better if left alone. You know, it takes great, almost Herculean effort to make the world a better place 
So wouldn't it follow that even the vitamins in your orange juice are going to like fall out. That's right. If you're not, you know, like <laughs> the making other shoe to drink is going to drop. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes. I think that's right, Tim. So that I think sense. it's a little bit, I, I don't think we could read, we need to read too much into it, but I think it communicates the kind of people and the culture of the family and that kind of yeah. thing. Well, I mean, it's one of those examples of where what great artists can do, what great writers yeah, can do. Where with a little detail, it's it's a little, it's a piece of detail that develops character, creates a moment, adds even a little bit of levity, but then is Means it's height, it's heightening mm-hmm. everything else mm-hmm. around it. Okay, let's talk about the family a little bit here because there's a question from well on Substack. The name is just S. Um, just the, the letter S. So, question is, why was he so cowardly? about alerting his parents to what they will find at the exhibition. The warning would have saved them both a shock, or at least mitigated. He doesn't seem to realize that his cowardly inaction means a greater trial for everyone, also requiring courage after its, after its initial suffering. Is it because he's too immature to understand warning would help them? Is it because he's overcome? Or because Potox readers need nearly uh, need tension before the story's climax? His lack of warning does make for a better climax and denouement by keeping us waiting to see what he will or will not do and what would come of it. This last would be in its details because we, the readers, already anticipate his parents' sufferings and shock if he doesn't warn them. So what do you, what do you guys think about this? Why does he not warn his parents about what's coming at the, ex- ex- the exhibition? And I suppose in particular, the, the crucifixions that he painted. Tim? I think S is clearly right. It serves the story to delay, to have his parents discovered actually in the museum. No question about that. I, I'm going to give like another really simple answer to a complex question. He's scared. He's scared. Yeah. He like knows this is devastating. And, and he doesn't think I, they'll come if he doesn't. Yeah. And to some degree, this is a justification of his existence. Apologia pro vita sua. This is a defense of my life. You're about to see it on display. Oh, yeah. And it also includes two paintings that are going to be an insult to, if you don't understand them, everything that we stand for in our kind of like people's legacy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's also going to be part of the show. And I find it hard to attribute, to call him a coward about this. I find it really hard to call him a coward because harsh. Yeah. I mean, I have been in situations with my own parents who I revere where I have not wanted to tell them certain things that I've done. And it's taken me like a lot of time to summon the courage and the stomach to do it. Um, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that was cowardly. I just have known too many people who have been in similar situations and it takes some time to muscle up. I agree. I think that's right. And also, I mean, clearly for the dramatic tension that it it kind of had to be that way, but there's also a psychologically consistent reason for it within the story. Many. Um, and one of them is, uh, get, is, is also that he's enjoying his father's approval for the first time. Yes. That's a yeah. huge point, Heidi. That's a great point. Um, and there's a, there's a reconciliation there that I think is, um, just like cannot be overstated how significant that is and how, and, and how formative that would be. Like, I, I can't even, I agree. I, whether it was a cowardly act or not, I don't condemn him for it. I get it. Yeah. The water is warm for the first time in. How long has it been since things between he and his father have been warm? 
It's been years. Yeah, since his He doesn't want to disturb that. Yeah. 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 So Jill, well, over on the Facebook page, Jill asks a question and includes a comment that actually might speak to this as well. She says, it struck me how so few people would genuinely answer his questions throughout his life. So is this why he's so drawn to Udell Krinsky? He seems to be the first person to really share the balance in the universe, quote unquote, with Asher. He doesn't try to hide the painful things. And do you think the general tendency in his community slash tradition to avoid talking overtly about pain and suffering contributes to Asher's need to express it in an image outside of his own tradition? In other words, if more people had been willing to talk earnestly with him about their suffering, like Krinsky, would Asher have needed to go outside his tradition to find his expression of it? Heidi, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's right. I think that that's really insightful especially considering his final conversation with his mother, which is when she, he just says, will you just please listen to me? Like, let me explain. And Mm. for the first time, even she doesn't have ears to hear. And she's the one who's actually listened to him even though she's been torn between many multiple, like, like multiple opposing forces you know she's the one torn apart um even more than asher uh but in that one conversation that final conversation he has with her she even she doesn't have ears to hear him and 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 i think that's one of the saddest other than like to me that's the second saddest moment in the story the first being when his parents see it and there he watches like they're approval vanish from their eyes, right? Their understanding, um, which is every child, whether they're a child child or an adult child, it's like nightmare. <laughs> um, and, but for her to, for for him to finally be cut off from his mother is like so sad to me. But yeah, I think that Jill's right. Like there's so few people that actually listen to him for him without thinking about how his ideas and his experiences represent their own ideas and experiences and beliefs in faith and tradition. Um, you know, they're always, there's always kind of this standard for Asher. Are you Jewish enough? Are you artist enough? Are you whatever enough? Right. Instead of just hearing him as a person with his own experiences first. And then going there, right? Um, and I think that is one of the saddest and most negatively formative experiences of Asher's life. I I think um, Jill's exactly right that nobody seems to listen to Asher Lev. I heard the question a little bit of a different way as to why he chooses a crucifixion to kind of represent his mother. I don't think there's a dearth of symbols of suffering or persons of suffering in the Jewish tradition, like Mm. Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, you know, the suffering prophets. Um, But I think there's some, there's something about the crucifixion in the Western tradition, which is the tradition that he's moving into. I mean, like when we leave the book, it seems to me like he's kind of got a, he still has a foot in each tradition, but it seems like the crucifixion is that symbol that visual symbol in the Western tradition that can articulate the suffering of his mother. I think that's why he chose that. I think he could have chosen something from the Jewish tradition to kind of represent his mother, but that might not make sense in the world that he is painting in. I think that's part of the reason why he, 
why he chose a crucifixion. Yeah, it's it's he. It's so tragic that to express, he he knows how to express his emotions, his experiences, his view of the world through a language that doesn't seem to have a a, a mode within the Jewish tradition. And so he's trying to figure out how do I, how do I respect that tradition, but then also also express using the mode that I know how to express through via whatever word we're using. And that that's, you know, there's a lost in translation. He's like, he's kind of lost in the middle there because he does, he, the one thing that I love about this book, which we've talked about is that he doesn't just abandon his, his faith. He's, he doesn't, you know, decide he doesn't want to participate in it. Even when he's in Europe with Jacob, he's still not painting on Sabbath and he's going, he's doing his prayers and all those things. He, he has the curls and, you know, all the things that he kind of makes light of in a, in a sense in the book, or he feels, you know, uncomfortable about. So he maintains that affection and respect for the tradition, but that tradition, what well, the suffering is there, as you say, but how he expresses how you live within that suffering is not there in the way that he is able to understand. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the Rebbe, I think the Rebbe kind of recognizes that. And that's why he's willing to let Asher go be an apprentice with somebody who does have a way of helping him express his, his in, via his language, you know? And, and so there's like the fact that his, he and his parents can't talk in the same, same language. You know, they speak the same language, like materially, like they speak, they use the same symbols, the same decoding, but they're not speaking the same images if that makes sense i don't know how else to say it so then i think that's what's right. lost in translation go ahead Addie. no i just agree with that i think that's right that there's uh um both sides though of asher's formation his artistic formation and his jewish formation are closed circuits right and uh the the collision between them is what creates the conflict of the story and it is only the master of the universe who can resolve that. Um, and each, each, uh, intervening voice, formative voice, uh, comes from one of those two circles, right? It's this book, as we talked about of, of, um, of opposites trying to find some kind of mystical harmony um, and with not only within the soul, but within the whole world. And Asher becomes this mediating kind of voice between these two circles through his art. Um, or does he question mark, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. As we've talked yeah. about. Um, and so I think that it's imperative for the story that, um, and just on the literary level, on the craftsman level, that none of those voices can really understand each other. Um, I think if I was writing this book, it would just have to be that way. Um, mm. and, and so I think that part of it succeeds in making the novel have this like weight or burden that we feel on behalf of Asher, whether we agree with one side or not. Mm. Let's do this question by Rebecca, which is, I think, related she says, can we revisit the title of the book, My Name is Asher Lev? It is obviously an identity statement. 
But why use it as the title? How does it tie into the work as a whole? It seems like there's something undefinable in, a- in Asher's identity and what he represents, the mysterious union of art and faith. Um, and then she says, related, what about the fact that Asher, one of Jacob's 12 sons, means happy or blessed? So what's going on there? So the na- so his name, my name is Asher Levin, and the definition of his name. He wants to go first. I can't speak to the definition of his name. I don't know about that but i think what's really interesting is isn't the first line of the book my name is asher lev and he goes on about kind of like how you know me um and then the whole book is sort of like a redefinition of my name is asher lev by the time we get to the end of the book he's not just this famous painter that we learned about on page one he has this entire history behind him like every Every painter has that, right? But his 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 unique circumstance and unique family and ethnic tradition kind of reframe what it means to say my name is Asher Lev. Mm. What do you think, Heidi? I I think that's right. I think that the title speaks to his identity his unique identity and how so much of the book is this search for himself. Um, and this war between opposing traditions uh, and his strong will um, that that is determined to find himself. My name is Asher Lev. Um, and it is a statement of identity and a search for identity. Um, and then I also think that uh, he he has to assert that throughout the entire book. Like all the time, he has to assert his selfhood uh, in order to find some kind of um, unity between these opposing forces and loyalties within his life. And and these like strong loves that he has, he loves his family uh, and he loves his art. Oh, I don't know. That's hard to say. I think he mostly loves Jacob. I can't tell if he loves art or if he just is. He can't help it. He has to. I don't know. Um, that it never like it's, about it's that. like breathing. I love breathing. Um, because if I don't do it, I die. I well, think writers of, like, talk about this all the time, right? Writing right. is awful, but I have to do it. Like, right? Yeah. Right. Yes, but I don't know if he loves it, and I've never really thought about that. It's more about, and I think that even speaks to the title even more that his mm. name is Asher Lev. He must be this. It's not about him loving it or wanting it. It's that he must be Jewish. He must be an artist and he must be fully himself. And how do I be all three of those things? Do you think, so just going back to the, the, the name part, do you think that for a Haim Potok, the fact that Asher means happy or whatever it is, then uh-huh. that he's Blessing. just yeah. creating some dramatic irony there? Maybe. Um, or that that's ultimately this this deeply unhappy child is is of all most blessed, right? Like there's there's a paradox in that. There's mm-hmm. there's yet another kind of mystical contradiction that or uh, or paradox that is resolved in the owning of himself. My name is Asher Lev. Um, there's that he has a unique calling as a Jew and as an artist and that 
and as a person. And Mm. that happiness and blessedness is, you know, the Jews of all people understand that to be the chosen is the hardest calling of all. (laughs) And yet the most happy and blessed, it's both. Mm. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? Okay, there's a question here from Aaron. He just shook his head. By the way, side note, I was listening to a podcast the other day. And one of the hosts described the other hosts as shaking their head. But it was clear by the context clues of the conversation that the person was shaking their head, yes, which I would call nodding. But people call it shaking their head. That's nodding. Okay, there's a difference between nodding is positive, shaking is, like nodding is yes, shaking is no, right? That's, I've, I've encountered that confusion before. And I'm like, they were shaking their head, yes? They were you, nodding, yes. Are you with me on this, uh, Heidi? One hundred percent, for sure. Okay. One hundred percent. Shaking. I, I just wanted to make sure that you know the universe was set straight on this. Here's another they, one, though. Here's David, a, you're as not long crazy. as we're doing this. Here's <laughs> another one. If you're moving a time back, like we've had these conversations on the text, oh, yeah. can we move the time back an hour? What does that mean to you? That if, means you're going to move it from three p.m. to two p.m. That's how I hear it. What do you think, Heidi? That's what I hear too. I think it's back. However, Scott said sometime, like he said a couple of times, oh, we'll move it back to one o'clock, right? Like from. And he doesn't mean like, we'll return it to a previously agreed upon time of one o'clock. Maybe so. Maybe that's it. But uh, to me, uh, I think back yeah. means rewind the time. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I've heard people say both ways. So I always clarify when you say we well, want to move it back an hour, what time do you want to meet? Because I've gotten it wrong. Right. So it's the nodding, yeah. shaking thing. Yeah. yeah. I would genu- generally just suggest that you actually just say times time. to yeah. avoid Can confusion. Can we move it? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Just, but uh, but I'm, I think we're all, we're all, look at this. Look at us. You know, look at us. All we in all agreement on these. This uh, is a sweet moment. These important mm, things. It really is. Okay. Speaking of. Just in time uh, for Christmas. Exactly. Right. Okay. Speaking of um, not. Sweet moments. Uh, Aaron has a question. She says, I struggled a bit with the character Anna Schaefer. Do you think there's a case to be made that she is an antagonist in the story? She told Asher right from the beginning that she was going to make them both rich, but that's not necessarily a noble goal or even the right avenue for his art. And it bothered me so much that they didn't serve kosher food at his shows. She puts two exclamation marks here. But it was ultimately his parents seeing his crucifixion paintings that caused Asher's final separation from his parents and his community. Was that going to be inevitable no matter how his art was shown? Um, what, so what do, you, what do you think about this? I think we didn't talk enough about Anna, partly because she's not in that many scenes, you know, ultimately, but she does kind of drive some complicated moments, you know, even if off stage. Heidi, what's your thoughts on, on Anna Schaefer? I like this Where question a lot. Yeah. Um, what are my thoughts? Right. Subject, verb, agreement. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, overrated. Um, I think that she is the voice of the business side of the art world. If we have from Jacob, we have him as the arts, the artistic side. He is teaching Asher how to be a, an artist, how to create um, within the artistic tradition um, and make it his own. And she is the business side. And we need both of them to understand what this world is. And so uh, whether or not she's an antagonist in the story, I think, yes, certainly she is the same way Jacob is, the same way his mother is, the same way his father is, the same way he himself is, that she's 
complicated and she is the voice of a certain way of being uh, that adds more layers of complication, decision-making uh, and understanding of the world um, for, for Asher and for us as readers. I, I really wish they had served kosher food at the galleries. I don't understand. Come on, Anna. We can't serve kosher food alongside. It's New York. It's New York. Come on. I thought I was like, for the, for the purposes of the story, it makes plenty of sense that she wouldn't serve it. Like, I totally get that, but I wish that she would have served it. I don't think that she has enough face time in the story to be an antagonist. And I also don't think of her as a particularly pernicious character. I, th- I agree with Heidi. She's, she's the agent. And, you know, artists, when they have a good agent, those artists love their agent. Um, I, <laughs> I have no problem with someone being really well rewarded for being good at what they do. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. wholly endorse that. We probably all can talk about the kind of abuses of capitalism that, um, you know, social media influencers make a million dollars a year and public school teachers make whatever, $50,000 a year. There's a gross injustice happening there. We've kind of all can acknowledge that, but I like, but in, in, in a perfect world, school teachers would be paying, you know, a lot more money than social media influencers, blah, blah, blah. That being said, I got no problem with Anna. She's, she is doing her job. She does it extremely well. I think she is representative of the kind of Goyim art world. And she plays that role really, really well. But I don't, I don't find her pernicious. I don't find her influence to be negative. Do you, so somebody said, uh, who is it? Suzanne, I think, says here, she leaked, do you think she leaked the photos of his parents to the newspapers? Actually, she says she thinks that he did. I, oh, I didn't even think about that. So if that, let's like, hypothetically speaking, if that's the case, and I'd have yeah. to go read the passage again, I haven't thought about it from that perspective. If that's the case, then that's pretty rotten. But then what yeah. is her end in doing that to sort of force him to, to leave, to get moving? To, is that a stir the pot? I think it's to stir, it would be to stir the pot. He was that's doing a, a really a intriguing signal. idea. If she, if she did leak the, the pictures, I think that would be a harmful and hurtful thing to do. And I'd have to reevaluate Anna, but it seems like it's a little bit of a mystery. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you think Heidi mm-hmm. that Asher is better off being separated from his family for a time, at least at the end of this book and going off to paint the hardships of the world? Or do you think he would be better off having continued on but having access to his parents and the community that he lived in. I, I think that I just trust the rabbi so much. I just think he's so wise and that I just trust him that he did the right thing and sent Asher away for his. And you think he is, he, he, you think he did do it for, for Asher's good. I do. It's interesting how you could, you could read him to be just looking out for the community and like trying to, minimize the amount of conflict and harm. If, and- I don't know that you can though. You'd have to convince me because of giving Asher's talent over to Jacob in the hmm. first place. It seems that if he was only about upholding 
the tradition as it was commonly interpreted uh, that he would have made Asher go to Vienna and kept him from the Goyim world at all. So do you think in the end then, this is for both of you, that mm-hmm. that he that the Rebbe did the right thing by sending him to Jacob? Yes, I do. I think the Rebbe did everything right. I do too. I think the Rebbe is like, I don't know about the hero of the book. I don't know if this book has a hero. It has a protagonist, Asher Lev. Well, that's so that's so interesting though because we we agree that Jacob is so complicated and he he is kind of a weirdo and difficult and things like that. I don't know that we so understand are his parents. Yeah, he's just as complicated, and I think he did just as much damage to Asher, and okay. also also was his pathway to becoming Asher Lev. So do you, do you, okay, so let me say this then, ask this, when he's younger and he turns to his uncle and he says, my name is Asher Lev, is he not Asher Lev at that point? Oh, oh that's so funny. I just had, it's funny that we're having this conversation, the question of identity, because I just had this with Jack last night. We were sitting and talking. At, to, yes, my son, Jack, it's, he's 16. Jack White. And not the Jack White. And he, um, he, he was sitting in the kitchen saying like, so I have a hand, right? So is the hand me? Like, am I my, am I like my, he's having all these questions about like identity and what it means to be a human and is our body and our soul connected and um, what, what, and if I'm going to change and become a man, am I still fully myself right now? Even if I'm a sinner and I'm enslaved to my passions and all these things, right? And they're such good questions. And even in asking it, he's asserting, I am Jack White. And I was telling him about the book. Um, like even that, even having those kinds of questions those and reflecting on the question of identity is an assertion of identity itself. Because it's saying, I care about being human. I care about who I am and what I was made to be. And I want to, I want to fully inhabit that. Um, and that itself is a, um, maybe not a fully formed identity. Like, I don't even think we're going to be fully ourselves until we get to the kingdom of God, but we're always, we're always on that journey. And the assertion and the question itself is part of that identity formation. And so when he says, my name is Asher Lev, even though at that point, he doesn't know who that is going to be in the future. It's enough to be making that assertion and asking those questions in the present. Or at least that's how I think about it. But I think that's one yeah. of the questions raised by the book. What does it mean to be a person and to be a person caught between worlds and trying to reconcile them and not doing it perfectly and making giant mistakes along the way? What does that mean? And, you know, the answer is the title. My name is Asher Lev. My name is Jack White. My name is David Cart. Right. Like that is that that is itself the. That 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 journey is itself the question it is the identity. So Tim, let me ask you this then at the end of the book, is he more Asher Lev than he was when he said it earlier? Or is he a different version of Asher Lev than he was when he said it earlier? Ooh, when Jack White is 40, will he be more Jack White than he is Ooh. now? Or is he, a, will he be a different version of Jack White than he is now? Man, we're, this is like really deep philosophical waters, right? Like I want to say <laughs> human beings are always in a state of becoming 
But that does not mean that in the state of becoming, we cease to be. So is becoming being? Yeah. I mean, like, I think that's hey, like I think there's the a riddle. book called that. <laughs> Wait, what's the, what is the, what's being the book? Being and I becoming. <laughs> what book is that? Is it Heidegger? Oh, you mean being in time. That's Heidegger. No, If that's I the know. one you meant, you I mean know. a different I'm going to figure it out, but keep talking. Okay, okay. I, the, man, we were really going to jump into it. Like being a human being is different than being a table in that the table is not really the table until it meets all the kind of whatever composite criteria that, that tableness requires. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would say that like my newborn baby is both a person and also becoming a person in the same time, in the same way. And so is Asher Lev closer to being Asher Lev than he was at the beginning of the book or that he was when he was just a child? I don't think that you can answer the question. I don't, I, I mean, if, if, okay, there's another way of thinking about it, kind of an Aristotelian way of thinking about it, which is we are more ourselves when we come closer to our purpose. And both we have a general purpose as a human being. I'm a human being and a human being acts in such and such a way to fully fulfill our purpose of being a human being. But then there's like an individualized purpose. I have a vocation that God has given me. Um, and if I am like, and if, and if that is my purpose, then Jack is farther along and Asher Lev is farther along now than they were when they were 10. But so you just mentioned Heidegger and being in time. Isn't that something he's talking about in that book? Like, doesn't he use a German word that basically takes, that basically suggests that existence is consciousness? Isn't that kind of a Heideggerian thing? And so, Dasein is the, Dasein is yeah. the word, right? The yeah. German word. Yeah, 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 I think, yeah. Yeah. But it has to do with like, he's using it in a way that suggests, like the word is typically translated in English, like being there or something. Right, right. But then he's talking about the idea of like consciousness, isn't he? And so that the idea that existence and consciousness to, to exist is to become more fully conscious. I mean, we're super oversimplifying. I'm trying to oversimplify right. Heidegger. Like, what I Heidegger. understand to be about, what I understand Heidegger to be about is that he's taking Oh man, <laughs> I hope people are not tuning out now. <laughs> he's taking Aristotelian metaphysics and he's saying like, there's kind of an essentialism in there that being means kind of like being in a static state. And he's saying, no, the nature of being a human being is being in time. We are like thrown into this world. It's moving forward. We're always kind of like becoming. And so Dasein, being in the world is not you cannot look at ourselves as a static entity we're always in some sort of trajectory right. and i think and and that makes so much sense to me it makes so much sense to me and in fact i mean to get in trouble with kind of like my classical background it makes more sense to me than kind of like the classical focus on essentialism i'm a little bit suspicious of that and i got huge problems with heidegger but I think that idea that we are kind of like living in time and it kind of like toward a purpose, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I think those can be reconciled to answer your question, David. And what you're saying, Tim, is really helpful that, okay, so if, as as Aristotle said, to go back to the Aristotelian metaphysics, that the telos or ultimate 
end, the purpose, the goal of an acorn is an oak tree, right? That's the telos. But there's a lot of time between acorn and oak tree. And so an oak tree sapling is is an oak tree. It is an fully mm-hmm. an oak tree. Mm-hmm. It's not anything other than an oak tree. But it is not yet what it is not yet the telos, right? And and that I think goes back to the question of Asher Lev and to your question, David, which is really good, that at what point are we fully ourselves, right? It's always like Asher Lev is always Asher Lev. And um an acorn, like the sapling is still fully an oak tree, but it still also has becoming to do. It still has more becoming, even though it's being an oak tree. And that I think is what the book is exploring. Um, and, and, and the forces that are, that are forming this oak tree to the kind of oak tree it's going to be, or not the kinds, that's the wrong word to the, the strength, the virility, the, like, is it going, is Asher Lev going to be the Asher Lev that Asher Lev could be? Hmm. Um, but along the way, he's still fully Asher Lev. One of the earliest memories that I have, I may have said this before is standing in my parents' bedroom in Green Bay when I was about seven years old, looking out the window because it was a snow day and it was negative 40 degrees. And so I'm standing up in the window and I'm looking out at these cars like barely creeping by and they're going so slow because of the ice, which this is, you know, you know it's cold and snowy when Wisconsin has a snow day. <laughs> and I was up there and my dad was sitting on his bed reading a book. And I remember looking out the window and then turning to him and saying, when I'm in heaven, will I know who I am? Like, will, will, I, will I will I like know that I'm myself? Like, will I know that I'm there? And I think what I was trying to ask at the time was like, will I like? Well, I think I was asking like about body and like you're as a kid, you're trying to like figure out the notion of like thinking about yourself. <laughs> yep. And I think that's kind of what's happening with young Asher, but he's doing that. His version of asking that question is he's trying to draw what he sees, and he has this mm-hmm. ability to see light in a particular way, and so harnessing that is like harnessing the ability to ask questions. And so it's like every time he draws something, it's him probing into some mystery. He's, he's trying to, he's trying to ask a question with each illustration, with each drawing, with each shade. And I think, you know, one of the things I love about, one of the things I love about this book, sorry, is uh, the way it, like it can stand up to these questions. We can talk about Heidegger and Aristotle and, you know, it, it's like the book doesn't get lost in it. Um, Speaking of other books, let's let's go with this question from Hannah. Um, she says, throughout the novel, I kept... This is over on the Substack, by the way. Throughout the novel, I kept seeing similarities between Asher and Jack Boughton um, from the, the Marilyn Robinson novels, especially how he's presented at home. I think this question still works, even if you haven't uh, read those books, by the way. So Hannah goes on, both of them, even as small children, seem to recognize that they are outcast by some function of who they were born as, not mainly due to the choices they make. Why are Robinson and Potok both making the argument, at least as I see it, that these religious communities can't accept somebody different? Why do I feel so much more pity for Jack than for Asher, even though home isn't from his perspective? Now, I guess I can't, we probably can't answer that last question for her. Why does she feel more pity? Uh, I am curious though, Heidi, well, for both of you, but Heidi first, do you, do you feel more pity for Jack or for Asher? And then what do you think of this idea oh, of... Man. The religious communities know. can't accept someone different. I don't know if I, who I feel more pity for, but I really like the comparison. I might, I, I really feel just deep, deep, like very painful 
um, longing for both of them to be happy Mm -hmm. and to be good. Right. That's like, that's what I want for both of them. Um, and my heart is like deeply knit to both the characters. Um, I think that the main difference between Jack and Asher is that Asher is not, um, rebelling against his, his religious upbringing or his, his religious Mm. community. Mm -hmm. Um, he isn't, uh, Whereas Jack is. And Jack is. Um, And and I think that that creates a different kind of pity, a different category of pity for me, for each character. Um, Yeah. And, uh, but the idea of them kind of, of, the idea of them being, feeling outcast um, and not being able to reconcile their outcast state with the love of their family because both of them come from families that deeply love them and want to integrate them into the community. They're not being rejected by the community, but they can't find a place in it because they just don't fit with the the categories that are given to them. Um, and so I think that that's another similarity. And in that way, I kind of do feel that same level of pity. But I think that's a really, really good comparison between those yeah. two novels yeah, and characters. What do you think, Tim? I, I agree with you. I think there's something Asher has not chosen to leave his community his he, community kind of doesn't have enough room for him in a way and he has the blessing Where, of the rabbi the whole time yeah right right anyway keep going whereas jack does make this kind of volitional move to leave yeah i don't feel like i only know jack through gilead uh, and we and i only get a little bit of him so yeah, i yeah. i shouldn't really comment much more on that heidi one thing about jack though that I can't decide if this makes me have more sympathy for him or less. He doesn't, well, probably more. He doesn't have the creative outlet, if you will, that Asher has by mm-hmm. which to see and interpret and wrestle with the world. That's right. And, and he's his, always a bit lost. <laughs> right. And if he had, and that makes me sympathize. If he had that language, if he had the language of art, if he had the language of aesthetics, I think he may have had a better chance at at being the outsider or feeling the outsider in the world, he may have been able to, maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess I need to think about it more, but like, cause he does kind of reject the, but does he reject it? He rejects it because he feels the outsider and can't conversate. Right. Mm-hmm. But if he had a way to conversate, <laughs> then perhaps he would have, he would have not rejected it as wholesale as he does and right. created that. And there would have been less havoc in his, the wake of, in his wake. On the other hand, it's not like Asher doesn't leave havoc in his wake as well. Okay, let's do let's do this. Let's do one more. I think we only got time for one more. This is from Cindy over on Facebook. She says, another question from early in the book. It seems to me that Asher sees the Rebbe as a type of Stalin. He speaks and people must obey. He says he cares about the greater good, but he doesn't seem to care if individuals are injured. The in some ways he even uh kills people. She's talking about Asher's uncle, I think it would seem to Asher. Um, Asher's demonic looking picture of the Rebbe seems to mirror his obsession with drawing the dead Stalin. So anybody have any thoughts about this? Now, this is a, I, this, I don't even know how to describe this question. I'm fascinated by it though. I noticed that too, when I was reading, uh, that, uh, everything that, that the Rebbe, when, when he draws the picture of the Rebbe in the, um, in the Holy book, yeah, the, he he draws the Rebbe with all of the associations of uh, exile, of fear, 
that that he feels about being separated from his family. Like it's kind of the rabbi has become this kind of like magnet for all of those negative associations. Um, however, that was before he met with the rebbe and had any kind of interaction mm. with the rebbe. Uh, this this for mysterious him to figure. Form, exactly. For him to form his own experience and relationship with him. And so it completely makes sense to me in every way that from a psychological perspective that he would displace his feelings of rejection from his father onto this neutral authority figure uh, and who is in his mind, keeping him separate and forcing all or imposing all of these dictates onto him because he knows his dad is doing the right thing, air quotes, by following the Rebbe and going everywhere he tells him to. And so he's been told his whole life that all of the things that are hurting him are because the Rebbe told his father to do it. And so he's displacing that onto this figure who's in this case, entirely imaginary, even though he sees him every week. Um, it's, it's, he doesn't yet know that the rabbi is not, is, is, is actually a wise and a caring man. He doesn't know that for himself. Um, and so to me, that whole thing makes complete and total sense, especially as Cindy points out with Stalin, whose parents are demonizing. And so he's become kind of this devil figure and the rabbi is the God figure. And then he does, they kind of like mesh and join together in this very complex uh, way that a child tries to make sense of negative emotions. And all of that totally makes sense to me, but, mm. but it doesn't come about again after he meets the rabbi. Mm. I think it's important to remember that Asher is painting what he feels. And I mean, because my wife is a therapist, she is so keen to point out feelings are neither good nor bad. They're a signal that something is really important to you. And we can, and we could say like, um, let's imagine a situation in which let's imagine that, um, Asher feels guilty. And let's imagine that the story, he feels guilty because his parents divorce right? But Asher is just a boy. We could say, but Asher, you're not responsible for that. Like those feelings, I understand that you're, you know, that you're feeling that way, but those feelings are not like based in reality. I think we can do that with our feelings all the time, but I think it's important to remember that Asher's paintings are just an outflow of how he feels and how he feels to some degree is kind of in a morally neutral place space neither good nor bad and I, please do not misunderstand me please do not misunderstand me saying like we're we should just feel however we feel and it doesn't matter if it's good but that's not what i'm asserting but i am what i am asserting is that there's a difference between like our emotions and our convictions and our actions and i think our we should try our best to understand our feelings first as just a signal. It's a signal that something important is happening to me. I agree. So I just read, reread that hideous strength. Um, well, I actually listened to it if I'm being technically mm. accurate. And, um, you know, one of the main, the, the main character, the protagonist, her name's Jane, and she sees visions and they terrify her. And until she's told to interpret them, another character says, don't, if you, if you think of them as this 
If you think of the dreams as this terrifying reality that you must escape or a disease that you're afflicted with, they will scare you and you will mm, not be okay. Mm. But if you just think of them as news, then you yes, can, right, right, right. Like, right. and that's kind of the same thing. That's another way of saying what you're saying. Like if I having a strong reaction to something, that's news. Hey, guess what? Newsflash, you care about this. It's impacting mm-hmm. you. It's affecting you. And that that impact is real, but our interpretation of it is open to change. And that's what being a therapist is all about yeah. to say, okay, you're, if you are, you don't, you can change your interpretation and then the feeling changes, but you have to first look at the feeling in order yeah. to know how you're interpreting it. So it's another way I, of saying what you just said. And I want to say like, I think all three of us would would assert that like a really great education is more than just teaching a young person how to calculate or analyze, but it's like an instruction of the affections. Mm-hmm. Here's what you ought to love because it's good. Here's what you ought to refuse because it's bad. A good education differentiates between t- those two things and emphasizes the good and hopefully like elevates the good for not just contemplation, but pursuit. Um, but there is a place where like we are all, even I now, um, I have dreams about things and I don't believe my dreams, but they are an indication of how I feel, you know? So anyway, I'm maybe belaboring the point. No, I think that's really good. David, you're on mute. It was, a, it, what you were saying looked profound. It, David. <laughs> I was just saying, that's a really interesting point. Um, so, it's you were talking about the affections. It seems like in some ways, when he is going through his training with Jacob, that's part of what's happening is a training of the affections, like a training of the passions, like even the stuff with um, the diff, like with the nudes that he's painting and uh, trying to identify what's beautiful and what you know. How do you make something? How do you really capture the essence of something? And uh, what does it mean? Like. Even all the contemplation of like, how does he capture the human body? Like in in order to be a great painter, you have to be able to capture it. Um, It seems like in some ways that is training his affections. Um, And even in ways that Jacob is not fully aware of. Like Asher is going through a sort of training of the affections Mm. because he is being asked to contemplate what beauty is. Um, And even what it means to be human. Um, so, man, this book has a lot, a lot going on. Oh man, it does. We could have done another, really we could have done another couple episodes, but that brings us to the end of this episode, the last episode before Christmas, twenty twenty two, and uh, it's been. We're going to talk about our favorite books of the year. You're going to hear that on the twenty sixth. That'll be our last episode of of the year on this on the on the main show here. Uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been listening this year. We got a lot of new listeners this year, a lot of new people to the Facebook group, and new Substack Substack subscribers and. Um, made a lot of new friends and um, just we are thankful for all of you. So uh, thanks for that. Thanks also to, to Classical U. Don't forget, you can go over to Classical U. You can use those coupon codes CR Annual and CR Monthly. They've got courses on the philosophy of education, on great books, on philosophy. If you want to do some, maybe there's some Heidegger in there, uh, on fine arts, like music, on history, on pedagogy, on science, on light languages. And there's so many different things there for you. Uh, and of course, on Shakespeare. So again, go to classicalu.com. And when you're checking out, you can enter CR annual or CR monthly, depending on which um, which plan you would like to 
to uh, sign up for. And that is available through the end of January. They've extended that uh, that deal for us for an extra month. It was going to be the oh, end good. of the year, but they've extended it through the end of January. So thanks good. to them for that. So Heidi, Tim, any final thoughts on this book? Anything you want to say before Christmas? Tim, just put up the peace sign. I have two peace oh, signs two things. Two. two things. I have um, a plug <laughs> and then I have just, I'm sorry, Heidi, I have to have a sports ball moment. Oh my gosh. Let me start. How did oh, we not talk about this at the beginning of the oh, show? I have my been gosh. waiting. I thought for sure we would. Well, so, we're going to talk are. about Christmas real quick. This, the World Cup like championship game, the, yeah, the final, final, was yesterday as of the recording of this mm-hmm. episode. Argentina and France, two absolute heavyweights with potentially the greatest player of all time, Lionel Messi. Not potentially. I think now he. I, I think, think he's the great. It becomes harder to argue against it than I mean, harder. I, love, I mean, Pele is incredible, but right, the numbers don't add up. That game, I cannot tell you, I cannot express how enthralling and beautiful and tragic and heartbreaking and poetic that two and a half hours was. That's the, it's the best soccer game I've ever seen in my life. It might be the best sports ball game I've I, ever seen in my life. I was watching it with my kids and they were a little in and out because it was taking, yeah. a, you know, soccer, it was taking a little long at times, but the older boys especially were there with me. And I was telling them at the end of it, I said, I think you might have just watched the greatest sporting event of the 21st century. So I'm far. not, I'm with you, David. I don't know how it could have been. So Galen, the stakes, the stories, the I drama, know, everything, the, you know, everything. Galen had to leave at halftime because she had to go work. So we had gone down the street to this bar that's in our neighborhood in Cabbage Town, Astoria. And we didn't even know they were going to be open. But we, I kind of poked my head in and there were like two guys and, you know, a big screen TV. And I tapped on the window. I was like, hey, can we watch the game with you guys? And the guy was like, yeah, I'm the owner. Come on in. And I go in. And by the end of the game, we were all like, I feel like we have become best friends now. Because <laughs> were you, guys, the okay, last were you, were you all hours, rooting for Argentina? They were not as passionate as I was. I've spent a lot of time in Argentina. I've got some yeah. really good friends who are Argentine. Yeah. So like I was really invested. And I love Lino Messi. I think yeah, everyone yeah. in the world loves Lino Messi. Yeah. Um, so I was really, dude. oh my gosh, I was suffering when hmm. they... You know, yeah, when the game coming was tied, back. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, and these guys were not suffering, but they were definitely enthralled. Yeah. They were enthralled and they were supporting Argentina. Yeah. I was, I was rooting very hard for Argentina and the boys like uh, right before the last kick when, yeah. you know, the guy who makes the final kick, he had the handball at the 122nd minute. Oh, or whatever. I didn't know that was him. Yeah. So he makes it and the boys are like, and I'm telling, I'm explaining to them. Okay, if he makes this, it's over. Argentina wins. Messi wins yeah. the World Cup finally. Yeah. And then the boys are like, "Okay, if it happens, don't yell too loud," because <laughs> we'd been like going crazy, you know. Uh, yeah. Lucas was real into it. You know, he likes to really, really into it. So uh, it was yeah. That was one of the. That was a great experience to watch it with them. And Ugh. I was on the group. I'm texting my dad. I'm on my group chat with a lot of my friends from church, and we're talking about the game. And you know, some of them are big soccer fans, like played in college. Some of them are just yeah. like only the World Cup. And I'm in between there. I'm a big yeah. soccer fan, but not like I don't watch it every week or whatever. Um, but that was I couldn't I honestly couldn't believe the game kept getting more dramatic. I know. Like I know. We all would have died if it had gone the next level. Up. I know. Heidi, okay. Know. Let's get Heidi in on this. Yeah, did you Heidi, watch, what did, did you, you think watch of the this game? match? Okay. What did you think so of Argentina's tactics? Here's the deal. Do you know where I uh-huh. was on that day? 
I you were at church. No, you were in England. You were in, were in England. England. Yeah, oh, that's right. My goodness. Was, we just got back from London for a quick trip, yep. and um, it was really cool to be there. Like everybody's in the pubs. There's flags everywhere. There's Even though just... the England lost tra- dramatically and tragically. Yes, yes, but they just love it there. They so love it's the game. Just, yeah. It's, it's the it, culture. Yes. And everyone's laughing and drinking and singing and rooting uh, against and France. Yelling, <laughs> like so much yelling, so much yeah. just like yeah. it's really, really fun, like the energy of it. And that's what I I mean, there's there's a couple of sports that I like for their own sake, but mostly for me, it's like the culture around sports that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like, and I just like enjoy it. I like love that. I love and I love that it is such a masculine world and you get to see, <laughs> um, it's like the only thing that men around the world are allowed to actually have big feelings about in public. And so it's just yeah. like, so fun. Like it's so My fun boys were for like, me to see that. And be yeah. I was just like, why are they all crying? Why is everybody crying? Mm. And I was like, because it means a lot, you know, like, yeah. you can't, you can't, I couldn't, I, w- I went to Peru a couple of times. You mentioned being in Argentina yeah. and I played soccer with these little kids, like on a cliffside and it's concrete court that they put up. There's no grass around. And the game is just means so much mm-hmm. to people. They don't have a lot, you know, the other sports that we have in a lot of countries around the world. And m- my dad said, I asked, my dad said, he asked my mom if she knew who Lionel Messi was. And she said no. And and uh, he said, although on the other hand, she probably doesn't even know who Tom Brady is. But mm. I said, if you ask anybody else in the world, every other country in the world, everybody knows who Lionel Messi is yeah. from Kenya to to uh, like Germany to Russia. You know, yeah, he's uh, the best known person on the planet. Yeah. Surely. Maybe Ronaldo because Ronaldo is so good looking. Handsome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well. We had to Can I do my one other plug? plug? Yeah. Um, we are uh, going to, I'm going to record a question and answer session over my two part Life of Shakespeare on the Plays the Thing podcast. If you would like to contribute, I'm going to post a QA post on the Close Reads discussion page on Facebook tomorrow. Post awesome. your questions there. So that'll be up on December 20th for those of you who are listening in the future. Okay, Heidi, anything else you want to add? No, I just wanted to end with Tim's plug. Right, cool. <laughs> oh, not literally. You, I'm allowed to still end the show? No, I'm... Yes, you are. Okay. <laughs> you are, absolutely. Please I'm speak. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh and his plug, I am David Kern. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for making 2022 such a great time here on Close Reads. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.